Uh, my name's Esme and I'm a member at Morn's Church. Um, we're reading Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 to 23. And it's, and it's page 984 in the Pew Bibles. So Matthew 17, starting at verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Thank you very much, Esme. Thank you, Dan. And good morning, everybody. Well, let's uh, ask for God's help again as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of a world full of lies and unbelief, Jesus has gathered us together this morning to listen to him. And so we ask that you'd help us to do just that, to listen to his word, to trust him and his powerful work on the cross, and so to become the people of faith that you have saved us to be, holding out the hope of the gospel in a broken world. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I want to talk about faith, and one of the most misunderstood aspects of Christianity is that word, that idea, faith. Uh, let me give you three examples of how I think this word is misunderstood generally in our society. First, I think the word faith is often used as a kind of a catch-all term for religious belief. So people talk, don't they, about faith communities, faith groups, interfaith dialogue, and you may hear that kind of standard journalistic phrase, also used by Prince uh, King Charles in his first Christmas speech, uh, people of all faiths and none. And the idea here is that some people have a kind of inbuilt quality that enables them to believe in the spiritual world or the supernatural realm, while other people don't have that ability. And these are the people of faith, religious people, people who believe in God or in the supernatural and if you're not a Christian this morning, you might have caught yourself from time to time wondering what it is that your Christian friends have that you don't have. And perhaps you've even said to them, I wish I had your faith. Another way faith is used is to describe the ability that some people have really to believe things without evidence. So faith in this sense is a kind of illogical belief. It's, it's harmless mostly. It's usually comforting, but it's basically a belief in the impossible. It's really a form of positive thinking, something that will help you overcome difficulties or get you through hard times. So someone might say, as you face this problem, just have faith. A third use of the word faith is, I guess, a kind of indicator or measure of spiritual health. 
So, for instance, if something goes wrong in life, for the person who does believe in God, a fellow believer might say to them, you've just got to have more faith. Hasn't God promised that if you believe, he will do anything? Isn't that, in fact, what Jesus promises right here in this passage? That if you have faith as small as a mustard seed and pray, God will answer your prayers. Just grit your teeth, really believe, if only you had more faith. So I think these are three common ways that faith is understood. And if you associate with those, you might be able to think of more. But I want to suggest that none of these come anywhere close to capturing the biblical meaning of faith. And yet, having faith, proper faith, is absolutely vital to salvation, it's vital to eternity, and it's vital for life in God's world now. Well, it is this faith, biblical faith, Christian faith, saving faith, that you may have noticed is at the heart of our passage this morning. And if you've got the outline in front of you, you'll see that we're going to learn three things about faith and why it matters. And we're going to firstly see that life without faith is hopeless. Life without faith is hopeless. Have a look at the passage again from verse 14. Matthew writes, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. Now, as those who are doing Bible skills at the moment will tell you, the first question, or a good question, is the context question. Who are they in verse 14, and where are they coming from? So you have a quick glance back at the previous section, and remember that Jesus has just taken three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain and revealed his glory to them. But if you were there here last time, you may remember, as Dan has also reminded us, that that glory, that white-hot glory that was revealed on the mountain, is not the glory of the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's not the glory that has been hidden behind Jesus' cloak of humanity. It's the glory that will be revealed when he dies on the cross. It's the glory of his victory over sin and death and Satan. It is the glory that we are heading towards in the Gospel of Matthew, the climax of his mission. This is the glory that will be revealed as he takes up his rule as God's king. This is the glory that we said would fill the universe forever and in which they will share if they share his suffering. It is the glory of the knowledge of God revealed in the cross. And therefore, verse 14 introduces a tremendous contrast, doesn't it? The previous passage was that mountaintop experience of glory and brilliance, a glimpse of the victory that Jesus is going to win when he drives Satan out from the world. And now we descend back down the mountain and we're straight back, aren't we, into the shadow of death. We're straight back into the world where sin and Satan and sickness has not been defeated. And in addition to that, we come back to this scene of failure and frustration. And so look with me at the scene that Jesus comes to. A man, a father to be precise, in great need with a suffering son begging Jesus for mercy. Now, we're at chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel, and we've seen plenty of people come to Jesus with needs and beg him for mercy. What is so different about this one? Well, we need to look carefully at this situation and and kind of peel back the layers of the story like an onion to, to really see what is going on and why Matthew puts this here. Firstly, let's put our imaginary stethoscopes on and and see if we can diagnose the boy's problem. His father gives us three pieces of information, doesn't he? He says, firstly, he has seizures. 
and I consult the commentaries and I see that over the years medical experts have tried to identify what is wrong with this boy from that word and they fail to reach much of a consensus. The word Matthew uses doesn't quite match things that we are familiar with today. It may be a mental illness, some suggest. It may be a physical illness. Some suggest it might be something like epilepsy, which brings on these sudden involuntary fits, but nobody seems particularly sure. The second detail, notice the father tells us he is suffering greatly, which if you've ever seen somebody have a seizure, you will not be surprised It is an awful thing to witness somebody have a a seizure or a fit like this. And then thirdly, whatever it is that's causing this behavior, it leads to this repeated attempted self-destruction in fire or water, which of course widens the suffering, doesn't it, to the, the whole family, to the wider community, because of their constant worry that this boy cannot be left unattended, that each time he has one of these seizures or whatever it is, might be his last. And so it's not surprising, is it, verse 16, the father wants him to be healed. I notice that word, healing, it's straightforward enough, isn't it? But then there's an ambiguity, isn't there? Did you notice in verse 18, suddenly... And without warning, we go from healing to demon possession. And although verse 18 tells us that Jesus healed the boy, verse 19, the disciples say, why couldn't we drive him out? The the language of exorcism of evil spirits. So what is really going on here? Is this a, a simple medical condition or is, is it a spiritual problem? Is it mental? Is it physical? Is it bodily? Is it spiritual? Does he need healing or does he need exorcism? Well, I think the question to ask is not what do the medics say or what does science tell us or how can we diagnose this boy, but why does Matthew put this here? What is he trying to tell us? Well, apart from the two blind men that Jesus heals just before entering Jerusalem, which have their own symbolic place in the story, it's worth noting this is the last individual healing that Matthew reports in the Gospel. And it's the very last time we hear of a demon being cast out. And I think that gives us a clue what is going on here. I think this boy is an example He is a kind of a case study that Matthew presents to us of all the sufferings of humanity that we've seen in the gospel all rolled into one. There is suffering, there is Satan, there is death, there is sickness, there is disease, there is mental, physical, spiritual anguish all rolled into one. There is the threat of premature death, destroying relationships, destroying hope bringing grief to the family and the wider community. And so this boy, who the father calls literally the son, this boy is a microcosm of the whole hopeless case of humanity that Jesus has come to fix. It is not just one example of suffering. It is the example of suffering. This is what it means to be under Satan's rule, in the world of sin and death. And so I think this represents a little look back, a little reminder of why Jesus has come to fix the world, to restore the sons to the fathers, to mend broken hearts, to put things right, to drive Satan out of his creation. So there's the problem. But there's a deeper problem now revealed in verse 16 as we peel off the next kind of layer of the onion. Verse 16, the man now tells Jesus, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. The father now reveals something that has been going on while Jesus has been up the mountain with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. 
He says, actually, something has been going on in your absence. I took this boy to the nine disciples, the ones who remained, and they could not heal him. And so the contrast between last week's passage and this week's is heightened even more. There at the top of the mountain, we saw a glimpse of the glory of the victory when Jesus is victorious over evil. And now we see the helplessness, the failure, the frustration in the face of that evil without Jesus. Without Jesus, the disciples are powerless to help. But as we peel back one more layer, an even deeper problem is revealed. Look at Jesus' surprising response in verse 17. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's a strange response, isn't it? Seems a little bit over the top. Notice that Jesus doesn't criticize the disciples directly for their failure. Instead, he kind of just rounds on the whole generation. That is, everybody alive in Israel at this time. It's quite harsh, isn't it? You know, when people sort of condemn a generation, you know, people of my age kind of, you know, oh, what are they, millennials, Generation X, always on their phones. Well, they're not always on their phones. Oh, there's a blanket condemnation. I don't have the right to condemn a whole generation. And actually, it's people of my age who are always on their phones, to be fair. But this is what Jesus does. He condemns an entire generation, a sweeping Blanket generalization, everybody alive in Israel is perverse and unbelieving. But there's a couple of things here. First thing is, Bible readers might just have a little bit of a deja vu here. A long time before this, another angry man came down a mountain and condemned an entire generation. He came down a mountain from an experience of the glory of God and found his people sinning. And in exactly the same words that Jesus uses, almost identical words in Deuteronomy 32, Moses condemns the generation, perverse and unbelieving. But why does Jesus do that? I mean, isn't this a bit hard on the disciples? After all, when Moses came down the mountain in Deuteronomy 32 and condemned Israel as perverse and unbelieving, it was in the context of brazen idolatry. Israel had made the golden calf. He condemns them for demon worship. And all the disciples have done is they failed to heal a boy. So what is going on here? We'll look more closely at the two words Jesus uses. First, that word perverse is an interesting and unusual word in the Bible. Its root meaning is something along the lines of twisted, bent, distorted, turned in on itself. But the the root meaning, which we'll come back to, is really twisted. But the other word explains how they have got so twisted The word unbelieving is simply without faith. Literally, that's what it says in the Greek. It's without faith. So Jesus comes down and he sees the disciples unable to heal the boy. And he says, this is a symptom of the problem of this entire generation. They are without faith. And that is why he condemns them. Well, you might think, well, that's a little bit unfair, isn't it? But of course it's not unfair, because all through the Bible, we see that people are supposed to be people of faith. Right from the word go in the Garden of Eden, God made us to be people who take him at his word. From Adam and Eve and Abraham and David, the Bible story is telling us we are made for faith in God. 
That is what it means to be human. That is what it means to have a right relationship with our creator, to listen to his word, to take him at his word. And if we don't put faith in God, then we become twisted, we become turned in on ourselves. Without faith in God, we are distorted, we are perverse, and we're at the mercy of Satan. We believe his lies, and we remain in the shadow of death. And so that is our first lesson. Life without faith is hopeless. God has made us to have faith in him. Faith is not some odd little characteristic that religious people have. It is what we're made for. We've been created for a relationship with our creator, and that relationship is faith. God spoke and the universe came into being. He speaks his word to us, and if we trust him at his word, we have relationship with him. And so life without faith is hopeless. But that is not enough to explain what the Bible means by faith. And what we learn in our second point is that faith without Christ is useless. Look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? The disciples protect themselves a little bit. They make sure they're away from the crowd before having this difficult conversation. They are baffled, chastened by their lack of power in the face of human suffering. And now look at Jesus' reply. Here is the problem. He replied, because you have so little faith. Now I want to suggest that this is where our understanding of faith can either be clarified or our misunderstanding deepened. The whole passage actually swings on Jesus' answer in verse 20. So this is the time, if you're in the habit of occasionally drifting off, and who hasn't occasionally drifted off in the middle of a sermon, this is the time to not drift off. This is the pivotal point. See, what does he mean by have so little faith? Well, it could mean, and it might sound at first glance, that he's talking about a quantitative amount of faith. So he's saying, you've got faith, but you've only got a little bit of it. If you had more faith, if, like the little boy making a wish on his birthday before he blows out his candles, if you could, if you could just drum up a little bit more faith, guys, just really believe, then you would have been able to cast out the demon. But you can see the problem with that, can't you, in the very same verse. Verse 20, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. See, a mustard seed is a proverbially small thing. In Jesus' day, a mustard seed is the, the smallest thing you can think of. You know, now we might say it's a, you know, an atom or something like that, but... A mustard seed is the smallest thing that you can possibly imagine. And a mountain is the most immovable object you can possibly imagine. So think through the logic of verse 20. He is saying, if all you need to do this impossible thing of moving a mountain is the smallest possible amount of faith, he cannot be criticizing the disciples for having little faith, can he? Do you follow the logic with me? Their problem cannot be the smallness of the quantity of their faith. The problem cannot be the amount of faith they have. Someone give me a nod to show they get the logic. Everyone, thank you. So what do you mean by little faith? Well, the word little faith, just one word, the only time the noun is used in the whole Bible, one word, little faith, it really means impoverished faith, defective faith. And we can see this partly by the logic of it, partly by the wider context in Matthew. See, if we want to know what little faith looks like, we need to search for its opposite, which is great faith. 
pretty straightforward because great faith sort of sounds like a quantity or amount, but it's not. So come with me. Let me show you two places. There are only two places in Matthew where a person is commended for great faith. One man, one woman, both extremely big miracles of healing at a distance. Interestingly, both of these people are non-Israelites. So here's the first one on the screen. Roman centurion in 8.10. You may remember he asked Jesus to heal his servant at a distance. Jesus does it. And we read, when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. No one in Israel has faith like the centurion And here's the second example, the Canaanite woman, which we saw just recently in 1528. Again, a healing at a distance. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So in the whole of Matthew, only twice Jesus commends someone for great faith neither of them part of this generation of Israel. And so what is it that they had that the disciples didn't have? What was great about their faith? Well, it wasn't actually anything quantitative. It was qualitative. It wasn't something inside them. It was that they came to Jesus and asked the impossible. They humbly recognized who Jesus was and trusted him. And that is, it's the object of your faith that makes it great or little. The problem with the disciples back in Matthew 17 is that they don't have little faith, but they have a defective faith. They are part of the unbelieving generation. They don't yet have faith in Jesus. Let me illustrate this. Imagine you're driving along in your 40-ton articulated lorry. I know, we've all been there, haven't we? And we come to that bridge, the one over the River Loon that says, weak bridge, 7.5 tons maximum weight. And you're sitting there in your 40-ton truck and you're looking at the weak bridge. And my question is, what matters more, your faith or the strength of the bridge? So you might be one of those people who have a lot of faith, the people I mentioned at the beginning, positive thinkers. And you might be someone who can really drum up a lot of faith, but if the bridge is weak... All the faith in the world won't get you over the river. Or think of it the other way. Now you are sitting there, this time in your Fiat 500, your Nissan Leaf or whatever half-ton car that you decide to drive. You come to the bridge and you still see the sign, 7.5 tons, weak bridge. And you think, well, that bridge really does look weak. But again, the question is, is it your faith that matters or the bridge? Or let me give you another example. You're preparing for your first parachute jump. You've done the training. You've learned how to land. You've learned what happens in that minuscule chance that your first parachute doesn't open and pull the cord and all the rest of it. And you're in the airplane, and the door is open. The wind is rushing in. You've got your parachute on your back. You've tied it up. You've been through the last moments of briefing. And the guy, the instructor who's taking you through this process, he says, oh, there's just one thing I I forgot to mention. Um, The person who normally packs the parachute, the highly trained, highly qualified, highly skilled, highly experienced person, he's off with COVID. And so... I got my children to pack the parachute instead. And he said, well, well, uh, how old are your children? 
And he says, well, they're three and six, but they had a lot of fun packing your parachute. And so you're standing there over the hole of the airplane and you're looking at the ground and you're thinking to yourself, is it my faith that's important here or the parachute? And this is what Matthew is teaching us here. That it's not the faith that matters. It doesn't matter how big or how strong your faith is. It could be minuscule. It could be massive. The question is, will Jesus get me to the other side? And so we're learning what faith is. It's not positive thinking. It's not some quirky ability to believe the impossible. It is confidence. Trust, reliance. And we all have faith. We all exercise faith in a rational, logical way. And what matters is whether your trust is in Jesus Christ. And so, to go back to the disciples' question, why couldn't we drive it out? There was never going to be anything in them that enabled them to drive out the demon. It's always Jesus who drives out demons. It's always God who heals. Even a little faith in Jesus would have been enough to do what they have just proved they can't do. But of course that raises a question, what about us? If we have faith in Jesus, will he heal us? Will he drive out our demons or whatever the equivalent is? Well, look again at verse 20. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this sounds very hopeful, doesn't it? This sounds very positive. But, of course, it it comes up immediately, doesn't it, against the reality of our experience. And so we read this with a certain embarrassment, don't we? Because it sounds like Jesus has overpromised and undelivered. After all, let's be honest, no one in the history of Christianity has actually pulled this off. No one has actually prayed for a mountain to be moved, and that has happened. And every Christian has prayed for things that have not happened. Does that mean that no one has true faith? Or has Jesus exaggerated for effect? Or has the promise ceased to apply? Well, let's look at this and make sure we understand it. So at one level, move mountains is just a a metaphor, isn't it, for a very big thing, yeah? A mountain is the most solid and immovable thing in all creation. Moving mountains is something only the creator can do. And so it makes sense, doesn't it? That Jesus is saying, if you have proper faith, faith in him, then all the power of God is at your disposal if it's in line with God's will. See, God won't always do what you want. But if you pray in line with God's will, with his kingdom purposes, something he's already taught us in Matthew 6, then God can do anything. And that's a good understanding of prayer and the sovereignty of God. But there's more to see here if we dig down a little bit more. See, in the Bible, moving mountains is not simply an example of something God can do. It is actually an example of what God will do when he recreates the world. Let me show you just quickly in three different places on the screen. Look at Jeremiah 4, first of all. Jeremiah 4, 23 to 25. Jeremiah says, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. The hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruin before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Jeremiah is making a prophecy here about God's judgment on Jerusalem and Israel. 
God is rejecting them for their faithlessness and their perversity. But at the same time, this is a prophecy about the end of the world and the beginning of a new one. That phrase in the first verse that I read, formless and empty, takes us back to Genesis 1 verse 2. And the formless and empty void before the creation of the world. And so God is saying through Jeremiah, when God recreates the world, when judgment comes, when the end comes, when he remakes this world, that is when the mountains will move. Or Zechariah 14, another example. Just before we read it, the context is again the judgment of God against Jerusalem. But this time, partway through the prophecy, God turns and fights against Israel's enemies and brings them to safety through the judgment. And again, it's about the end of the world, the day of the Lord. Look at it on the screen. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light, no cold, no frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. And then finally, Revelation 6. How the end of the world is described by John. He says, I opened... I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars of the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's some strange language we've seen there in these apocalyptic passages. The simple point is this, that in the Bible, when God moves mountains, it's not simply a big thing that only God can do. It is the thing God will do at the end of the world. When he ends this world and remakes it, when God moves mountains, it's time for salvation and judgment and the coming of the kingdom of God. And this, as we already know, is what Jesus has come to do. And so we're learning what faith is. Faith in Jesus means faith in the one who will move mountains. Faith in the one who will take the world apart and remake it in judgment and salvation. The work of kingdom building. The work of restoration, of restoring all things, every disease, driving out Satan, binding up the brokenhearted. That is what Jesus has come to do. That is what he's saying he will do. And his disciples must trust him. But at this point, another objection has to be faced. Because if that's all true, then isn't faith still really just wishful thinking? Because Jesus has come. And the mountains are still here. Jesus has come. And we're still in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus has come and we are still beset by evil and sin and disease. And therefore, aren't we back to where we began? Isn't faith simply wishful thinking? An insurance policy for those who need one. When did he move the mountain? Well, that brings us to our third and final lesson. Life without faith is hopeless. Faith without Christ is useless. But thirdly, Christ without a cross 
is powerless. Verse 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Once again, Jesus speaks of his mission as the Son of Man in terms that the disciples could not yet grasp. This is why they're filled with grief when they should be filled with hope. He puts these two ideas together that we've been grappling with over this series, this idea of the glory of the Son of Man, risen and ruling and ascended, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, who's going to rule all things. And yet he puts that image alongside his death, his rejection, his suffering. And so the disciples do not understand. They are filled with grief. But this side of the cross, we don't have that excuse. We can read on in the Gospel of Matthew. We can read on in the New Testament to see that actually it is the moment of his death that is the moment of glory. It is as he deals with Satan and sin on the cross that he becomes the one who is the Son of Man. It is at that moment that he rules the universe. Then is the moment where Satan is driven out. And they think Jesus' death is the end of the mission. We know it fulfills the mission. They think the suffering of Christ is incompatible with the glory of the Son of Man. But we've learned that in his suffering is his glory. Because that is when Satan is captured and conquered. That is when the kingdom comes. That is when the moment of restoration begins. When the judgment of God falls on him. That's when the mountains will shake. As God begins to recreate his world. So that one day when he returns, we'll see him for who he really is, the crucified and conquering king. So I think we've finally arrived at what the Bible means by that little word faith. It's not some kind of religious belief in the irrational or the impossible. It's not a wishful thinking that you can drum up inside. It's not even a kind of vague hope that Jesus, because he's powerful, can sort out life now and can answer our prayers. No, no, faith in the Bible is faith in Christ crucified. And I want to conclude by suggesting that this is a comfort and it's a challenge. It's a comfort, isn't it? Because, again... We see this is not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about how much faith you have, or how strong your faith is, or how weak your faith is, or how you feel about your faith, or whether you've got every possible question nailed and doubt resolved. It's about whether Jesus, in his death on the cross, and his resurrection to life, is big enough and strong enough to get you across the river. It's faith in Jesus that matters. Faith in Jesus who bore the penalty of our sin, who took all of our guilt upon himself when he was killed, who once and for all cast out Satan from the world, who rose again to fill the universe with glory. So that's a comfort, isn't it? It's not about your faith. It's not about how you feel about the bridge. It's about whether the bridge is strong enough to take you across. This was expressed beautifully before in our second song, wasn't it? When I fear my faith will fail... Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful fears. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And if you have faith in Christ and his cross, 
You know that what your life is now will not be how it will be when Jesus is revealed at the end. Faith is not positive thinking, but knowing for sure that Jesus, who died on the cross and rose to remake the universe, will complete the plan God has for your life. That he will gather up the fragments of your broken heart, your broken mind, your broken body, your broken spirit, your broken marriage, your addictions, your disappointments, your failures, your messes, all the injustices of the world, he will gather up, he can and he will, because he did it on the cross. That was where he began, to drive out Satan. And so faith in Jesus means clinging to him in the shadow of death. So you'll be part of that new world. Everything mended, everything resurrected, everything put back together, the mountains rearranged, just as God wishes. So I want to suggest that this is a comfort. But I want to suggest that it's also a challenge. It's a challenge, isn't it, when life is hard. It's a challenge when your prayers are not answered the way you want them to be. It's a challenge when God's love is not revealed in glory. Hashtag blessed because everything is going right. But in suffering, hashtag blessed because things have gone wrong. And you're picking up your cross. And you're sacrificing and sharing in the shame of Jesus. It's then that you must trust the cross. Because if you don't, you're still part of the broken, hopeless world. You're still aligned with the unbelieving and perverse generation. So faith in Christ is a comfort. But faith in Christ is a challenge. Because you must put faith in Christ. And if you don't, you're lost. But there's one more thing. Matthew has one final lesson for us this morning. And that is that faith in Christ is not something we do alone. I wonder if you notice the strange sort of twist, the strange turn we get in verse 22, we're suddenly in Galilee. When they came together in Galilee, verse 22, it seems a bit out of the blue. Most of the commentaries I read are a little bit baffled by this. Who are they? We're not told. Presumably the disciples. Why are they coming together in Galilee? Weren't they already together? And why does Matthew cut suddenly to this gathering in Galilee? And why describe it as a gathering? Why not simply say, as he does in verse 24, when they come to Capernaum, when they came to Capernaum? Most strange of all is the highly unusual word Matthew uses for coming together. It's the only time this word is used in the whole Bible, apart from in Acts 28, where it's described it's used to describe Paul gathering up a bunch of firewood to light a fire with. There are other words Matthew could have chosen to express this. Well, do you remember that verse, word in verse 17, where Jesus described this generation as perverse? And I said that the root of this word is the word twisted. Well, that same word, that same root is the one that Matthew uses here. And of course, if you think about it, twisted can have a negative and a positive sense, can't it? Twisted can mean distorted, perverted, as Jesus uses it here in verse 17. But twisted can also have a, a positive sense, in that when something is twisted together like threads being bound together. And this word here, Jesus is twisting the disciples together around himself as they listen to him, they hear that the restoration of the world is going to come through the cross. They're being twisted, gathered in, rightly around Jesus. 
So I want to suggest that here is a beautiful little picture of the church that Jesus is gathering around himself. Those who believe in the cross and the resurrection. Here is the true community of faith. The only real community of faith in a world of faithlessness. The only real community of faith in that generation of perversity. As they gather to Jesus and keep listening to him, they are being untwisted and twisted instead around Jesus. Their lives are being straightened out as the glory of the new creation that he has promised comes flooding in ahead of time. And as they get ready to hold onto the gospel of Jesus and go forth into the world to proclaim it and plant more communities of faith. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Twisted together around Jesus the true community of faith, holding out the world, holding out to the world, a gospel of hope. This is what we are. This is what we do. So let's pray that we'll be the people of faith. Let's pray. Just give you a moment to collect your thoughts. And let's pray and ask God for his help that we might indeed be people of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in the words of the Bible. Thank you that as we listen to him, we see him for who he really is, the risen, ruling, transfigured Lord of all. And we pray that each of us this morning, whether we are on the mountaintop of glory or in the valley of the shadow of death, will resist the lies of Satan, that normal, everyday unbelief of the world, and we might put our faith in him, in Christ and his cross. We ask that as we hear his word and trust that cross, you might grow us and gather us in the midst of a Satan-infested world into a community of people marked by faith in Jesus and hope in the restoration of all things that his suffering for us has already achieved. And we pray that we might faithfully hold out that gospel of hope to the world around us. For Jesus' sake, amen.